0: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at BlueBox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component 1, Makers of WidgeMo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgemo.com and check them out. Don't
1: panic, they'll be paid for
0: most of us. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools, and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, SAS, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 65 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have James Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV, and this week we have a special guest, Adam Hawkins.
2: Hey, how you guys doing?
0: Uh, terrific. So, Superb. you want to introduce yourself, since you're new to the show?
2: Yeah, so my name is Adam Hawkins. I'm primarily a Ruby guy, but uh, have come to the JavaScript world through Ember and browser applications, and I've been here now for about a year and a half, and just um, learning as I go along.
0: Nice. So uh, anyway, you, you recommended that we talk about build tools, and then you wrote a blog post about it. We we talked about build tools, I think, on like episode two or three or something. Mm-hmm.
2: Um.
0: So in your mind, what, what are build tools?
2: Well, I think a build tool is something that you need to create a JavaScript application. And There's a distinction between, say, something like maybe an application or just something you're building that needs CoffeeScript or something like that versus a full-blown application that runs in the browser which needs, like, modules, you know, asset pre-compilation, like, templates, all this sort of stuff, and testing and things like that. So on one end, you have build tools that simply do, like, the compilation and the concatenation, And then you have other tools that aim to be kind of like a whole development environment. So there is a large spectrum, and you just have to choose what you need, basically.
0: Mm -hmm. So what kind of a build process do you guys have on the projects that you work on?
2: Well, okay, so my background is we are building a CRM with AmberJS. And we needed, well, a lot of different things. So... I prefer, well, my team prefers to write in CoffeeScript and use SAS. So we needed those two things right away. And then we needed module compilation, and then also asset concatenation, minification, as well as like environment support. So like we need to develop a certain code, and then deploy with certain code. And... Yeah, a few other things. So it's pretty, it's pretty complicated. And we needed a tool to do that. And, well, I wrote one after looking out after looking um, what was out there.
3: So what made you write one instead of use Grunt or Yeoman or something else that's already out there?
2: Well, we started to do our work right around the beginning of 2012. Um, so I mean grunt I think that Grunt was around, but Yeoman definitely wasn't and like we had looked at grunt, but at the scale of what we needed to do, it just didn't seem to make sense for us.
3: What do you mean by the scale of what you needed to do?
2: well, like all the different like all the different things that we we had to do, like the compilation of the different things and well, we had like a whole build process. And, you know, with Grunt, you can declare your tasks like, okay, I need to compile these files to CoffeeScript and then these directories. But our build process is like 10 or 15 steps long. And having to create all those different Grunt tasks and then customize them for different environments just didn't seem to work out for us.
0: So it sounds like there are a lot of steps here. You know, we talked about minification and compiling CoffeeScript and all of these different things. So when you're talking about a build tool, are you talking about something that kind of integrates other pieces that do those things or?
2: It it depends uh, because some of the build tools like Yeoman will do it and Brunch will also do it. It actually depends on how integrated you want to be. Like with Grunt, um, you can just use it to compile your, you know, compile your CoffeeScript files or something like that. But um, other tools also integrate testing and... Like a lot of different things. Does that answer your question?
0: Um, Kind of. Why don't you go ahead and explain your build process?
2: Okay. So our build process is initially we compile all of the CoffeeScript files to JavaScript files, and then from there we wrap each JavaScript file in a certain directory into modules. So we have a, like an app directory that contains all of our models, views, controllers, and helpers, and things like that. And those things are all wrapped into a JavaScript module. And then we have other parts of the code, which are like initializers and things like that. So... When you say... And,
0: hang on, I, I need to back up for a minute. So when you say a module, I'm usually thinking something like require.js or something mm-hmm. like that. Is is that basically what you're talking about there, or...?
2: Yeah, well... We use Minispade because the thing for us is at the end of the day all the JavaScripts are always compiled down into one file even in development so we don't necessarily need something like RequireJS
0: Okay, um, anyway sorry so I
3: interrupted you RequireJS, I mean you still have your files separate in development you, you, you keep them all together even in development like you run your build process every, every, every time you change a file
2: uh, Yeah But um, the nature of the build tool we're using is that only the different parts of the tree are rebuilt when one file changes. So yes, we do run the whole thing, but it's really not so bad. Hmm. Okay.
1: Interesting. Why not use RequireJS to manage file dependencies on each other?
2: Because it just didn't seem like we needed that. I mean, are you familiar with Minispade?
1: Uh, No, not at all. Does it basically do that same thing? It's Ruby-like, so you just
3: type require... Right, and you put in the path of your file, and it kind of just pulls in the file, but it doesn't—it doesn't return anything. It just like just evals the file, right?
2: Well, yeah. So, I mean, Mini is very basic. All you do is essentially map a string to a function call. So, uh, part of the build process is to look at the file name and then generate a Mini module based on the file name. So, like we have a file that's called app, you know, controllers, application controller. So then that that translates into controller's application. So then also part of the build process is to look for require statements and then rewrite them as minispade.require, which then calls the function, which then usually just evaluates some code in the global scope, which is totally fine for us. Cool. So... That's like one part of the, one part of the build process. So like that's where the application code is. And then there are other code, other codes, uh, like initializers. So for Ember, you can tie into the boot process and do things there. So we have a set of files there that are treated a different way. And those files are wrapped in immediately invoked functional expressions. And then there is vendor code and things like that. And Depending on where the file is in the file system, it's inserted into a different position inside the final, inside the final compiled file. So, for example, I mean, we have jQuery in our, in our application. So jQuery is just inserted at the very top of the file with all the other files in the vendor folder. And then it comes like the application code or comes the initializers and then the environment specific files and then the application files like the controllers and the models or whatever. And then comes the compiled templates. And that's the build process for the JavaScript.
0: Nice. So So you talked about like minification and things like that. Is, Is that part of your build process as well?
2: Yeah, depending on what environment we're in, we minify. So for example, we have our production configuration file. And inside there, we say that we are going to minify. So when we deploy the application, we just compile it for the production environment, which includes things like, Minification and some other things to strip out um, Ember asserts, which are unused in the production builds, and also precompile handlebars templates. And then we also do image optimization and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so,
0: what are you using to precompile your uh, handlebars templates?
2: Um, we are using the barber gem that uh, me and Paul Chavard wrote, uh, which is also what Ember uses to precompile its templates for its own build process.
0: Yeah. Now, now when you're saying gem, I mean, that's Ruby, correct?
2: Yeah, that is Ruby. So uh, the Ember JS build process uses Ruby and actually we are in the process of moving it over to grunt. Um, So at the moment it uses um, a Ruby gem to to precompile handlebars templates.
1: Hey, Chuck, uh, you know a little bit about Ruby, don't you?
2: Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think uh, you and I, Chuck, are... I mean, I will consider myself primarily a Ruby and Rails guy. I don't know if you would have put yourself in that same category.
0: Yeah, at this point, yes. I'm I'm trying to, you know, broaden things out a little bit, but it's it's hard, and this is kind of a tangent, but the, the thing for me is that uh, I like being an expert in at least one area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... I'm not willing to ignore Ruby to go become more proficient in other areas. You know, if I can work it in, then I will. And, and I find ways to do that. But, yeah, I'm not going to ignore Ruby for, you know, too awful long to go, you know, dig into the other technologies. So Because that's that's what people are paying me for is to be an expert in Ruby.
2: Well, do you guys have experience working with some build tools like Yeoman or any of these other things for building JavaScript applications? So we use
3: Grunt um, and RequireJS. It seems like a very different workflow from yours. It accomplishes the same thing, but it just goes about it in a really different way. So we have RequireJS, so it gives you that nice list of dependencies in each of your files. You don't have to count on things being added to the global scope in some other files. So it lets you kind of sandbox your modules a little bit more and then just Grunt to build it. And and that works well for us. I was going to say this, So you said you you consider yourself a Rails developer that Mm -hmm. does JavaScript. And this definitely seems like that kind of workflow. It seems like it's geared towards someone who's more comfortable in Ruby um, and kind of does JavaScript to make cool applications but isn't deep in the JavaScript world. Is that an accurate statement?
2: Yes, generally, because...
3: No, I mean, I'm not saying you're, like, not a good JavaScript developer. No, 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 I mean... You're a Ruby developer that
2: does JavaScript is what it seems like. Yeah, that's how I would classify myself that most of my, I mean, I've been doing Rails since 2006, and I've been doing front-end in Ember now for like a year and a half, almost two years. So just by, you know, the math, most of my expertise is in server-side stuff, and pretty much all of that is in Ruby.
3: So Uh, this is kind of a tangent, but what led you to make a client-side app instead of use some of the more traditional Rails techniques like server-side rendering and, and... the Russian doll caching that gets talked about a lot?
2: Well, we hit a problem in that we had a very complicated UI, and we were using like server-side rendered JavaScript to update the page. Like when you submit a form, it go to the server, and the server would tr- return a JavaScript that knew how to like update the HTML and things like that. And then at a certain scale, that just completely fell apart and was no longer feasible for us to continue developing our product. And then we decided to switch and go client side with Ember.
0: Yeah, there are definitely some uh, upsides to going with the client side. I mean, one is is that if you can distribute more work out to the clients, then you don't need as heavy duty a server because most of the most of the heavy lifting is being done in the browser. And uh, the I mean, you know, the the trade offs are there, and they're totally worth it one way or the other, depending on how complicated your application is and what you're doing with it. But at the same time, I mean you know, sometimes it does make sense to just move ahead with the server technologies because you might have a little bit more control and you may never run into some of those issues, so.
2: Yeah, well, I think this was something that I realized in the after spending a significant amount of time doing this was that, like, for us, Chuck, like, going from a complete, like, a very mature development environment and platform like Ruby and Rails and coming from JavaScript or going to JavaScript, it's a big change. And -hmm. a lot of things that we have on the server, we don't have in the client at all. And build tools are used to kind of fill the gap, you know? Yeah. Like, especially when you have, like, I think that we can all agree that it makes sense to keep your, like your classes in separate files and then use something to string it all together, you know? you have to use another tool to get that with JavaScript.
0: Yeah, I have seen, though, where you keep all of the files separate like we're talking about and then Require.js will actually go and request the files when it needs them. And that's a technique I've used in the past and it seems to work pretty well. So in that case, you don't necessarily need... um, You don't need it all in one file. So So save yourself the HTTP requests in the browser.
3: That's good for small apps, but if you're writing anything larger... You're gonna have lots of separate files, and that's gonna just kill your performance. Yeah. Um, in in development, I think we have like three hundred, five hundred, I don't know, modules. And even in on MacBook Pros on Google Chrome, when we load up our app, it's like ten seconds to just resolve all the HTTP requests before the JavaScript gets loaded. So it's yeah. It's, but that's
0: pre-build.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. this is this is in development mode, just to avoid having to run a build tool every time you you make a file change or have a watcher or something. I mean, yeah.
1: Wow, it's taking you guys 10 seconds?
3: Are you going to, like, pound your chest about how many more files you guys have?
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh, only we could have a
3: 10-second long time.
1: I don't know know what our numbers are for files. I think we have more than that, but I don't think it's taken us that long. But honestly, I don't know. I feel... I feel silly that I don't have those numbers like at the, my fingertips, so that I can pound my chest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure your 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 app's significantly smaller than ours. We have like a hundred thousand lines in our app, so yeah, we have cool. like a third of that. Yeah. yeah. So I think the number of files that we've got is significantly larger. So, but I, it doesn't seem like we have that long um, in dev to resolve the HTTP requests. So what do you do? For your build process, Chuck.
0: Well, for my build process, for most of my JavaScript, um, I have to say most of my clients, you know, they're requesting uh, Ruby on Rails applications, and most of the functionality involved in these apps are, you know, they're they're on the server, they're they're running in Rails. So I just use the built-in Sprockets pipeline. Yeah, the Sprockets asset pipeline stuff, and just build it out that way. However. Um, I have built a couple of apps where I I split things out and actually used RequireJS to manage them. And Mm -hmm. in those cases, I I just serve up the raw files because they were never big enough for me to actually, you know, worry about doing more than maybe consolidating some of them into a single file. Sure. What about you guys,
1: Joe? Um, We're using grant really heavily. We have a huge, huge, huge build process with a lot of stuff, but, uh, and it's unfortunate Merrick's not here because he's the one who's kind of the architect of it all. But it's, it's really served us very well. One of the big things that we found was just from running our tests, switching from PhantomJS to Chrome went from like a minute to six seconds to run all of our front end tests, which we don't wow. have. That. We've got less than a thousand front end tests. So, but yeah, that was, that was crazy because Phantom is really fast for lots of stuff, but just running those tests, you know, these are just uh, mocha tests. This performance difference was—we think we we're, we suspect that it has to do with caching. That Phantom is not an aggressive cacher, and Chrome is. So that's what we suspect, but we're not really sure why it's so significantly faster. But also, Mer- Jameson, t- I just ran a quick test. We have 500 HTML or JavaScript files coming down, and I think it takes us about three about to, about three seconds to load the page.
0: Yeah, so well, there there are other that, issues there too. I mean, you know how much how much stuff is between you and the server that you're pulling it from and stuff. So if your dev server is in house or on your local machine, that might make a difference too.
2: Yeah. Do you guys use source maps when you're developing, or does it even matter if you already have the code in separate files?
1: Yeah, since we're in separate files, we don't mm-hmm. here. We actually yeah. don't use source maps
3: either, and we use CoffeeScript. So the first week that anyone starts that hasn't used CoffeeScript before, they, they are grumpy. Um, yeah. but then they just kind of figure it out. I don't know. There's, yeah. there's tools you can put in your editor to compile stuff, or you just kind of, it's not that different from the, the job. Uh, the compiled JavaScript isn't that much different. So you can just kind of learn to read it and figure out where it came from. Do you, yes, do, Joe?
1: you do you wish you were, uh, using source maps? Do I wish I was? Yeah. Would you like? Do you think you'd like it if you if you were if you if you, like you had it hooked up for free? Do you think you'd? Like I mean, it? it'd be cool. Yeah.
3: It it'd probably save me a few seconds every day, <laughs> and it'd be cool because I'd have tech cred. Yeah. I th-
0: I, I think have to
3: feel bad about not using them.
0: I think source maps, though. One of the things is that most of your browser JavaScript tools, or even in Node.js, you know, they don't give you the. um a way of linking back to your original code. And no, they it, do. Oh, they That's do
3: what a source map is. Yeah. You can ship a minified concatenated file, um, but debug in the unminified separate, oh. like modules.
0: I, I didn't realize that they actually would, uh, translate it for you and open up yeah. the right file for you. I yeah. was going to yeah. say, cause that, that would make them super handy. Well,
3: they are,
1: <laughs> They are. <laughs> So I'm, are. Kind of, I'm kind of curious, you said that you guys are concatenating, even in dev. Do you find that to be a problem, because it kind of seems to me like, at least in dev, the trend is for people to try as much as possible to keep separate files and their build process as minimal as possible in dev, and then be more, have a longer, bigger build process production. That seems to be a fairly common pattern, where you guys are, seem to be, at least with the single file in dev, that's a fairly unusual one. Do you find a lot of
2: pain from that? Mm, no, actually, um, not at all. Um, it's actually worked out really nice for us. And, and where would you think the pain points would be? As Are you, are you thinking about speed or uh, other issues de- or what? Debugging, just debugging. Oh, so part of our build process is in development. We use, um, this is kind of embarrassing because I don't know the exact official term for it. I'm not sure if it's source map, but it's when you do like... Um, The comment at the end of the function that indicates like the name of it. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Um, not if it's not source maps, but continue on.
2: (laughs) Well if you do you can so if you if you annotate a part of JavaScript with some special comment, it indicates that like this is where it was originally from. And so in development, we compile all of our files as all all of the application files as strings, as string string functions which then are evaluated with this annotation. So when we're developing and then we see an error, we'll see, okay, line five of, you know, blah, blah, blah controller because of the annotation.
3: Do you run a watcher or do you rebuild um, every time you make a change? Because that's the um, part that drives me crazy. I mean, you, you can hook up source maps, but if you have to turn your interpreted language into a compiled language, then it makes me grumpy.
2: No, we don't do that. And we just... We just reload the page when we're when we're done editing, and that's how, yeah. You know, we don't we don't run our watcher. Sure. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing
1: how quickly our baselines get adjusted. I mean, I was doing compiled languages for twelve years, and then I started doing JavaScript heavily, and now if I actually had to go through a compile step, I'd pull my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually
3: been doing lots of Go on the server, and it's made me appreciate JavaScript and also hate parts of JavaScript that I didn't hate before. <laughs> but definitely I appreciate that it's interpreted and I don't have to wait for a compile step until I hit a function where I misspell a variable and then I'm like, why can't a compiler check this for me?
0: Yeah, but then you, then you usually it. get the backtrace and can you can find it, I mean.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, haven't
0: found that terrible. I mean, the nice thing about the compile step is it will tell you all of the uh, syntactic or otherwise problems that it's designed to find all at once. Indeed. And and that's that's the trade-off. But at the same time, you know, I haven't missed that, you know, especially since in some cases when I was working with compiled languages like C or C++ or even Java, you know, you get as many warnings as you get useful information. And so you wind up digging through a whole bunch of stuff and wishing that you, in some cases, could suppress the warnings. <laughs> And so, yeah. I mean, there's there's a trade off there too. But yeah, I I tend to like the interpreted languages. You just run the program again. and Find the problem. Yeah,
2: it's much nicer. Yeah. I agree. warnings are like your conscience, Chuck. Wear <laughs> <laughs> them at your peril. So I
0: suppress my to... conscience too.
3: <laughs> just pass it a flag. Turn it off. That's right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about iridium specifically? We've kind of been talking about build processes in general, but this is. Uh, this is the specific tool that you guys use. Use does it, does it require that you use Minispade, or can you drop in another, um, like, uh, Browserify or RequireJS or something like that?
2: You can... Okay, so you can drop in whatever you want to. So Iridium is something that uh, I wrote, and it's built on top of Rake Pipeline, which was initially written by Yehuda Katz for Living social to do essentially asset compilation of various things so with rake wasn't pipeline it his answer ahead.
3: to the asset pipeline he wasn't a, a huge fan of it and this is kind of his his interpretation of what that should look like
2: Isn't yeah
3: pipeline's history
2: i i think somewhat and the rake pipeline is much more um flexible than what you can do with with the rails asset pipeline
0: i i think my my understanding is that uh you know he didn't have a major beef with the asset pipeline in rails What it really came down to was there were a few things, few other things that he wished that it could do, especially once he started getting into Ember and things like that, and so he uh, he added these other niceties to it.
2: Well, I think uh, the other part of it is that I mean I've run into this in my work is we primarily are a team of Ruby guys, but we have JavaScript and like front end people, and when all the tools are written in Ruby or some other language versus people are familiar with, it's you know rubs people the wrong way. And if you just want to like build an application with something like Ember or Angular or anything like that, if the only interface you have is a simple command that's just like build, you don't have to really learn anything. Versus if you want to use the asset pipeline, you basically have to use all of Rails. It's not worth it for you to configure it yourself outside Mm -hmm. of Rails. Yeah. So I think that also has a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah.
1: So one of the things that I heard you talk talk about that I was kind of curious about, I, I'm just curious, um, what what made you uh, go to Ember on the front end versus picking any of the other, uh, you know, like Backbone or Knockout or Angular? Is it because of the kind of the parody, it, it seems, with uh, Rails?
2: Uh, no, it was really because at the time when we made the decision it was really the only game in town. Mind you, this was... We decided to go full client-side back in November of 2011. So that was a long time ago. And, um, I mean, there was Sprout Core and I had no experience with Backbone, um, but Ember just seemed like a better fit for what we were doing. And I have a lot of respect for Yehuda and the work he's done and kind of trust him as a developer, you know. So I said, okay, if is willing to stake part of his like claim in this area, then I think that means something. And so yeah, that's pretty much why we chose Ember. Gotcha. So I think is it Jameson, you have some other, you had a question about Iridium or what were we talking about before before we got sidetracked?
3: Yeah, yeah, just about iridium in general and how it works.
2: Yeah, so the iridium uses pipeline, which defines like a cus like defines a build process that should work out of the box for most applications, where it will do like CoffeeScript compilation and SAS and things like that, and give you um, module wrapping and a dev server and a test harness, and then a way to compile your assets for deployment. And yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it.
3: Sweet. Um, so, is there a good like getting started guide if someone wants to take a look at Iridium?
2: Unfortunately, no. And this is kind of my fault because um, the I was hesitant to write documentation for it because a lot of the things it depended on were just Git dependencies. And I didn't want to kind of like release this software and have to make everybody go through Bundler to just install it, you know. So I've just been holding off on it. But unfortunately, no. And um, I think I'm also kind of hesitant to write the documentation onto it because I'm not sure how much uh, traction it would get, to be honest, because I of the whole Ruby versus, like, JavaScript thing.
3: Sure. I mean, there's definitely a, a group of developers that are like you where it would appeal to them to have a tool written in Ruby. Um, I've heard that a lot about Grunt when I talk about it with people that I don't want to use Node, like, Why would I use Node? I'm more comfortable with Ruby. It's got better tools for string manipulation, that kind of stuff. So I think it's kind of an if you build it, they will come thing, right? If you write docs, then maybe it'll get more traction with those people.
2: Yeah, we will see. I mean, my initial uh, use case for Iridium has always been like um, Ember apps. So there is an Iridium Ember plugin you can install, which will then automatically in You know, install like an Ember.js file and all the different files required for Ember inside the right files and give you generators so you can create controls and things like that and does the proper uh, Embers, handlebars, pre-compilation, all that kind of stuff. Um, But I think that um, the community just wants JavaScript stuff, which is completely understandable. So, I mean, even the Ember team itself is moving the repos over to use Grunt.
3: So that's a little bit of a different case, right? If you're shipping a client-side JavaScript library, it seems weird to force your Java. I mean, the people that are using that are going to be JavaScript developers. So it seems weird to force them to use a different language. I mean, at the the least, you could ship a a compiled version of it. I, I just had a little bit of nerd rage about this the other day. I was cloning a library, and I had to use Rake to build it. Like, why not just have a downloads folder that has your JavaScript library? I don't know, a tiny rant.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's the same because if the the nature of client-side applications is that they only can be built in JavaScript. And the the people who are building these applications are going to be JavaScript developers. So I think that it makes sense to have the tooling all in the same language. And just when we started, there really wasn't anything else out there. The only thing out there at the time was Brunch, according to research I just did because I was wondering how long these tools have been around for. And I didn't even know about it. And the only thing that I saw was um was Rake Pipeline, so I just built on top of that.
0: So my question is, I mean we've we've talked a lot about maybe, you know, Ember JS folks moving to Grunt or uh, you know, pure JavaScript uh, implementations. Do you feel like there's any kind of Mismatch between building JavaScript build tools in Ruby versus JavaScript build tools in
2: JavaScript? Um, yeah, somewhat, because the thing is that, unfortunately, you always have to sh- like shell out to the other language to do something. So, for example, if you're building a, a tool in Ruby and you need to compile hem- templates of handlebars, then you have to shell out to like Node or something. You have to use JavaScript for that. But if you're... I'm not sure if it's still the case, but if you're in JavaScript and you want to compile SAS, you have to go through Ruby. So there is like this weird intersection point between the two ecosystems.
0: Uh-huh. Do you think eventually we'll move to the point where the JavaScript stuff is done in JavaScript and just has a clean port to Ruby or vice versa, you know, with SAS, where they have a SAS compiler written in JavaScript?
2: Well, they I know that SAS is moving towards a C implementation and then, now, I'm not sure, but you can can Node use C extensions? Yeah, you
3: can write C++ modules. So some smart person will probably do that with, with Libsass once it gets... Yeah, so, yeah.
2: so I think that's what we'll see, is that we'll have... I mean, each ecosystem will have their own, like, native versions of all the important things. And, I mean, it just so works out that, like, script is is JavaScript and SAS is is Ruby and most people usually use one or the other. So you always have this weird dependence.
0: Yep. So if somebody wanted to build their own build platform for their application, um, what recommendations do you have for them to figure out which tools are the right ones or whether or not they need to build their own?
2: Okay. So I have done a lot of research on this uh, after the fact and that, when you decide what kind of build process you want, you really kind of have to ask yourself: Am I more of like a JavaScript person, or am I more of an other language type of person? And see what solutions are available in those languages. You know, like um, one of our team members is a purely front, like a purely front end guy. He doesn't know any Ruby; only does JavaScript and Node, right? And when I showed him like our initial version what we built, it was like you know it's totally foreign to him but it's totally easy for him to just wire up all these things and grunt and make his stuff work. And it also has to do with whatever technology you're using on the back end because that usually has something to do with it. Like, for example, um, if you're doing testing of your application, perhaps you want to integrate like your back end at the same time you're developing your front end. And it also depends on what language you're, um, like what your, what your back end is. Like if you are doing if you're using Rails as a backend, perhaps you need to control the server more, so that has to be done in Ruby. So maybe then your test framework has to, your like your test suite has to be in Ruby, and you need to find a build tool that kind of caters to that. Or maybe your backend is in Node, and you can use JavaScript. So you need a build tool that kind of caters to that. So there's really a lot of variables in the equation, and it has a lot to do with personal preference and other technological choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at this point, it doesn't really make sense for anybody to spend a lot of time building their own build tool. I would like to see maybe like you know a small set of really good libraries all competing against each other versus a whole bunch of libraries that um, maybe are not so good. And I think that it's nice to see Yeoman now gaining a lot of traction and just bringing a lot of developers into the space so like we as a community can have great tools, which is something that I think we really need in JavaScript.
0: All right. Well, um, I don't know if I have any more questions for you. Do you guys have any more questions for Adam before we get to the picks?
3: I just wanted to ask a little bit about your testing setup.
2: Well, okay. So our testing setup is we use in-memory data in our Ember application. And then we execute the test in a browser with QUnit. And then if we want to, we can run the test headless with um, phantom.js.
1: So are your tests more like integration type tests where they're like hitting a lot of stuff?
2: Well, for us, yes. I think that it made more sense for us to just focus on the integration points because we, that was where we got the most value out of the tests. And it's very hard to unit test UI stuff, especially in Ember, I think. Interesting. So what about unit you know, testing any of your business
1: logic? You guys aren't, haven't really focused on that.
2: Well, I mean, as far as business logic goes, we have like some extra methods on our models and helpers, and those those things could easily be unit tested. But there's we haven't seen the need to do it yet. And I think also we started doing our testing before a lot of the testing stuff in Ember actually kind of shook out. I mean, now there's Ember testing, uh, which changes a lot of things and actually makes it easier. And when we started doing it, there was nothing like that. So we just kind of forged our own way and kind of got stuff working and just went with the easiest thing that could get us the most value instead of doing the thing that was the most, um, like the, the most correct engineering choice, I guess.
1: I gotcha. So I'm obviously, I'm a really big tester guy. Anybody who's listened to the show much would recognize that. And I would, I would definitely encourage you, um, to relook at the value of unit tests and and anybody really who's embarking on a new project to look at the value of unit tests. Cause uh, you know, obviously if you, kind of got a setup going things are going a certain way you can kind of put yourself into a place where we are what, what we're already doing is kind of working for us and where the amount of effort it might take to do to change things around might just not be worth the value in the long run but in definitely in general in the majority of cases the unit tests are going to be really valuable have a lot of value and a lot more value in the long run even than integration tests just because of the high cost of Integration tests. Uh, not that I'm saying they don't have value, because I really do believe they do and they should be done. But unit you know, tests, uh, bang for the buck, are definitely the highest bang for the buck in, in in general. Not any not any particular case, but in general, the majority of cases. So, anyway, so you might just, have to go on an epic yak shave to get them up
3: and running. <laughs> yeah, it's worth it. Is that what you're saying, Joe?
1: Yeah, that that's definitely true. Sometimes that, that you can be in a place where that's true and it just doesn't it doesn't make sense at this po- you know at a late point in the game to make a change, but I would never, I, I would consider myself, I would beat myself up if I ever didn't say, hey, unit testing is awesome and people, sh- people should be testing their JavaScript code. That's kind of my, like my whole point in life right now is to get people to test their JavaScript code.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that I'm saying that. I'm just saying that uh, in our case, if most of your classes are just empty shells or framework classes, then what's the point of unit testing when all you would really be doing is testing the framework?
1: Sure, and I definitely want to say that you know your, your mileage can vary based on a particular circumstance. But in the general case, unit tests are really by far the most bang for your buck.
2: Oh, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think that this was actually a hard point for us, was that in the beginning it was just so difficult to kind of get anything working and testable. I mean, coming from the server side where you can pretty much test anything... And having to like really work to just get something working where you could just like write a unit test for a simple module you wrote, and then write an integration test to simulate the user actually clicking the application. You know, that was an awful lot of work. But I mean, once you have it, it's you know, the rewards are unlimited.
1: I really hope that Ryan Florence and uh, Yehuda cats listen to this and. Make sure that Ember continues to address the uh, documentation and friendliness of uh, testability in Ember. I know that they've made leaps and bounds in improvements in, in recent times. And Ryan Florence in our last show kind of said something funny. He said Ember's often attitude has been, yeah, you test your code, but they haven't really made it a focus. So, personally, I hope they continue
2: to make it more of a focus. Yeah, I hope so, too. And I know that Ember testing makes it at least much easier for people. And I think a lot of the te- like the the culture kind of like around testing has to do with also the tools that you're using. And in JavaScript, there's really a lot of choices. And it kind of depends if you want to do it, say, like in Node with Mocha or whatever, or if you want to execute the stuff in the server. And for the the framework has to come out and actually make a decision on which one they want to do, and that can be hard. I mean, I think that they have with unit. but I think that's always the hard part about making these decisions for everybody, you know?
3: Yep. Yeah, it's true.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Jameson, do you want to start us off?
3: Uh, Yes. So I have two picks. The first is this indie game that was made in a seven-day game jam called Sub Rosa. It's kind of like a a mob simulator game. So it's only fun if you play with a, a large group of people, um, but it's free on the internet and it's kind of like blocky polygons. Not very pretty to look at, but it's super fun. So the way it works is there are three teams. Each team has an objective. Um, they either have to like buy a disc from another team or sell a disc from another, to another team or just get the disc. right. So they're they're all kind of working against each other um and you can like drive around in cars and shoot out windows and stuff and it, it leads to these funny moments where everyone's meeting together these three teams are meeting together to exchange uh, these briefcases you don't know what's in them if they're cheating you or not and then one person pulls out their gun and then suddenly like everyone pulls out the gun and i don't know it kind of devolves into violence it was pretty fun and my next pick is this thing called biggie which is a uh, uh little wrapper around a, a library someone made to make slideshows out of Markdown. So you just make your slideshow in Markdown and then it posts it as a gist on GitHub and then uh, you can give these really lo-fi slideshows that give you lots of programmer cred for being super ugly. So yeah, those are my picks.
0: Awesome. Uh, Joe, what are your picks?
1: Uh, so my first pick is a, an iPad game. Uh, it's called Kingdom Rush and it's the Frontiers uh, kind of version. It's a, a tire, it's a standalone that it's basically just kind of a part two of the Kingdom Rush. It's a tower defense game. It's very cool. It plays different than uh, a lot of tower defense games that I've played where you don't lay out the path, but instead, uh, along the existing path, you put up towers, and you've got, like, mage towers, archer towers, artillery towers, and then fighter towers, and you have to put your fighters to slow down so that your other towers can do damage, and it's just a really fun game. Their, their second edition of it basically came out, this or this new part two Came out, Kingdom Rush, and it has been really fun. Just had a ball playing that. And then Brandon Sanderson has a brand new book out. I didn't know who he was coming out with, called Rith- The Rhythmatist. And that's with a starting with an R, Rhythmatist. And Brandon Sanderson is just an awesome, awesome author. The author of the last few Wheel of Time novels and, uh, yeah. and series. And so I about- picked up a copy of this book, really excited to read it. Haven't read it at all yet, but I know I can safely say it's going to be a good book, knowing that how good of an author Brandon Sanderson is. And then for my last pick, it's kind of a little bit of a rant um, about the younger open source generation of developers. <laughs> okay. Before they had to walk uphill both ways. Exactly. I went to uh, Open Source Bridge and spoke there. And I gave a talk about test-driven development and Angular JS. And uh right before that I attended a talk by Ward Cunningham, who is one of the you know, luminaries of our industry. He he helped invent Agile, he invented the wiki. And so I attended his talk, which is really cool about teaching your wiki to do new tricks with data specific or domain specific languages. And then he, to my great pleasure, came and attended my talk on that I gave. And then I spoke with him briefly afterwards. But as I was just so excited, and texted a bunch of my friends, and tweeted this out. Um, a lot of my friends were like, "Who's that?" And I just <laughs> in my head was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" This is one of the central figures <laughs> of our industry. Even my boss, who's older than me, didn't know. And so, definitely, it's more heavy to, or more likely that if you're uh, younger, you're not going to know who these slightly older people are in our industry that have been around, but. If you don't know who people like Martin Fowler and Ward Cunningham are, um, Bob Martin, the guys who you know have changed our industry, and th- there's plenty of people beyond that, but the people who have really formed our industry, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice, and you ought to spend a little bit of time, you know, now and then, looking at who are the people that are uh, really created what the shoulders that we're standing upon today. Uh, these guys, these giants who give us the tools and have brought about all these amazing changes in the industry. People nowadays, they know current names, Addy Azamani and Paul Irish, but there are a lot of people that were around before those guys that have just done amazing things for our industry. So as my pick, I'm picking Ward Cunningham just because he was an awesome guy. He was very friendly. We had a nice chat. I almost got the chance to pair with him and teach him uh, angular, but it ended up, ended up flying out the night that he was available. So I really regret missing that fantastic opportunity.
2: So your pick is graybeards, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great pick, though.
0: Awesome. All right, well, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is speedtest.net, um, which is just a terrific way of figuring out how fast your internet connection is. And you can actually pick the server you want. So I typically pick a server that's close to here. So I've been go I, I hit the X-Mission server in Salt Lake City. But... uh you know, it it's it's pretty handy for just finding that out. I just got a new internet connection and they promised me a certain level of bandwidth and they are coming out tonight to adjust it so that I get what they promised. And uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm excited about that and I've been using this like all day long, <laughs> testing my connection. The other pick that I have is ThemeForest.net, which is, uh, they give you HTML layouts and stuff. Um, they have a bunch of other web pages that give you you can get music or clip art or things like that off of them as well. But uh, I really like uh, some of the stuff that they give me, and that way I don't have to go and find a design. I can find one that I like in there, and I can pay, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 bucks, and uh, use that for the web page. So anyway, those are my picks. Adam, what are your picks?
2: So I have a few picks. Um, my first pick is a music pick. It's um, solo piano radio. So if you like laid back, just solo piano music to code or just hang out to, you can listen to it for free on iTunes. And they also have a paid stream without ads. I uh, Just listen to that today and it's totally great, you know, at midnight. My second pick is ConvertKit, uh, which is by Nathan Berry. And it's a product for, like, launching products and tracking um conversion things like that. So I'm using it to launch my ebook and it's worked out great. So if any other freelancers or programmers are looking for something, I recommend that they check that out. And my last pick is um an application by my friend Joe Fiorini, who was on the podcast a couple times ago called Statically. And it is a Mac OS Uh, build tool for people who who need that so it's launching pretty soon and i think that uh, people should check it out and those are my picks
0: awesome all right well i think uh i think we're done so uh thanks for coming adam it was a good discussion
2: that was totally fun i think we got a little sidetracked but i think the nature of these issues is they really like expand out into so many other areas as well
0: yeah. And I think it depends on what your background is and what the environment you're coding in is. And so those tangents kind of inform the decisions that you're making and why.
2: Yeah. No doubt. So
0: anyway, um, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.